Good morning. If I, were, if I were to ask you, what's the hardest game to play, I wonder what you would suggest. I suppose if it comes to brute strength, you have rugby or American gridiron up there somewhere. But if it comes to the subtlety of strategy and so on, I would imagine chess would be somewhere there. What about skill level? I've tried snooker, I think that's pretty hard. What is the hardest game to play? While you think of that, would you turn with me please to Acts chapter 1. Last week I spoke about the resurrection factor as it related to loneliness. Today I want to speak about the resurrection factor as it relates to getting on with the game. But what is that hardest game to play? Acts chapter 1, reading from verses 4 through to 11. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father that he promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, he said, why do you stand there or stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Yesterday I needed to put some mulch on my garden. So I went down to the local um, garden centre and uh, I got there pretty early because I was scared they'd run out of courtesy trailers and I got the last one. And I wanted to get this load of mulch and as I was there, someone came in and wanted to get the last trailer available and I had it. And um, he said, well... Can I, what, what are you doing? What, where are you going with your trailload of mulch? And I said, I'm just going up the way. I told him where I lived. He said, well, can you hook it onto my truck and I'll follow you and I'll help you unload and then I can get the trailer. And he followed me home and he helped me unload and I was very grateful for that. And then he had the trailer. He couldn't play the hardest game of all. He couldn't play the waiting game. I was hoping he was here, Lance Honick. He's not, is he? Lance, are you here? He couldn't play the waiting game. That's the hardest game of all to play. I told you last week about the time that I was in London working for a couple of months and how lonely it was that first morning I woke up after I arrived. I rang Ruth and talked for a while, put the phone down, and I was more lonely than ever. Now, though, the two months have gone by and it's the Saturday. 
Gavin, our eldest son, had arrived a couple of days ago, and that was great. But now Ruth and Brad and Janelle were about to arrive. And as I recall it, the plane was landing about late or mid-Saturday afternoon. Friday night, I spent the whole evening cleaning the little um, flat that we had. It was absolutely beautiful. There was food in the pantry. There was milk in the fridge. I'd made the bed nicely. Everything was great. And I was out at the airport about 9 o'clock Saturday morning. Why? Because I'm stupid. <laughs> I, I couldn't play the waiting game. I got out there and I walked into every shop and I wandered here and there and eventually they arrived. But I'm hopeless at the waiting game. I really am. I think it's the hardest game of all to play. Just think now of those 12 men. I'll cut it down to 11. We'll forget Judas Iscariot. Those 11 men who followed Jesus for three years and watched him do wonderful things, and it started to build within them, is this really the Messiah spoken about in the Torah or the Old Testament? And they became convinced that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And then they saw him crucified. And then a padlock was put on their hope, and they realized he can't possibly be the Messiah. Then Jesus raised from the dead, and death disgorged her victim, Jesus walked among them, and their hopes were raised again. And these disciples, these 11 men, were once bewildered, but now they're strengthened and ready to do whatever God wants them to do. And their great cry, as we read it in Acts chapter 1, was this, Will you, Jesus, at this time, right here and now, restore the kingdom? There's 11 of us, you preached to 500 people or appeared to them after their resurrection, so let's count them in as well. And you appeared to one or two others, Mary and Mary and etc., etc. Let's be generous. There's a thousand people now ready to gather around while you restore at this time the kingdom of Israel. A little while back, you rode into Jerusalem on an ass. Get a war horse, Lord, and ride into Jerusalem, and we'll be right there beside you. And if you can command Galilee to be still, and if you can make wine out of water, and if you can feed 5,000 people, can't you get the hobnail boot of Rome out of us? Can't you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Because if you are, we're your men, and we're ready to go. But Jesus said, no. If you can do that, Lord, you can make this work too. But it's not switched on. God gave them a new perspective. As they were sitting watching, I, I can't help wondering what it would have been like when he was received out of their sight and they stopped gazing into heaven. Go back to Luke 24, would you? Because this is another slight comment on the same incident. Luke 24. I'm not putting these references up because I think it's occasionally a good idea that we turn to the Bible ourselves and read them. Luke 24. Verse 50. When he had left, led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Just pause. What would you think if you were one of these 11 men 
You are now absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. The kingdom of God is going to be established soon, you hope, and suddenly he goes. Well, we read on in that particular verse, Luke 24, verse 51, or verse 52, then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem, fed up to the back teeth, no, with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. They weren't despondent. They weren't distracted. They were totally sold out for the fact that Jesus, even though he had gone, would somehow empower them to get this kingdom established. Maybe he's gone for a week and he'll come back again and then the kingdom will be restored. But whatever happens, we're on his side. We're his, we're his in every sense of the word. In Luke 24, just prior to what we read there, we read in verse 45, then he opened their minds, these were the disciples, so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. So all nations, hang on, uh, how many are there? All, all of them, we can't do that, we're only 11 men. All of them, all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things and I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So now the disciples have got to play the waiting game. Wait in Jerusalem. Poor old Lance couldn't wait half an hour. Poor old Max couldn't wait two months. Wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power and then we will start this business of spreading the kingdom of God. And this is what we have just read together. And now we go to talk about the new power. What will it actually be? And we read in Luke, in, in Acts chapter 1 rather, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The word power is the word dynamis, from which we get dynamite. And power is spoken of a lot. Even today we read about it all the time in our paper and see it on the television. In our modern world we talk about power brokers and power hungry and the power base. And they're all focused around the idea of self-promotion Self-exaltation, but the power spoken of here is the power of exalting the name of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit possesses a dynamic that works to remove from us anything that is not Christ-like. We're now going to go into new modus operandi. While Jesus walked amongst them for three years, it was Jesus' hands that broke bread and fed 5,000 people. It was Jesus who touched the eye of a blind man and he could see. It was Jesus' voice that spoke and Lazarus come out of the grave. But now it was different. After the Lord Jesus went back to heaven and the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost came upon came those who believed Jesus Christ, it was Peter who healed. It was the apostles who performed many miracles and signs and wonders among the people. There was a cripple sitting at the temple gate, and it was Peter who spoke to him and healed him. It was Philip who met the Ethiopian eunuch and led him to, a, to salvation in Christ. It was Paul and Silas 
who witnessed the breakout from prison. It wasn't Jesus actually here doing it. It was the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. And I want to say with all the strength that I can muster that if you are a follower of Christ, you are a possessor of the Holy Spirit within you. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that the baptism of the Spirit of God is subsequent to salvation. It is instantaneous with salvation. In Romans chapter 8 we read, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit. If you have not the Spirit of God living in you, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not, believe, do not belong to Christ at all. If you do not possess the Holy Spirit, you are not one of Christ's at all. I possess the Holy Spirit today. And we now come to the word, you shall be witnesses unto me, and that causes a problem. You see, when you go back to the great confessional psalm of David in Psalm 51, he prayed and he admitted to God his great sin of adultery and murder. And he cried out, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, David was praying pre-Pentecost, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. And at that time, back pre-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon people like David and Samson and Solomon and all the others who followed at separate times and separate occasions. But now, post-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given to all those who believe in Christ. That is why David prayed, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We do not pray that same prayer. Then there was a new program. You will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Eleven men it started with. Now there are billions who follow the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a very interesting fact that of all the miracles that Jesus did, he never once operated multidimensionally. What do I mean by that? Jesus never split himself into two people. He never stilled the storm while he was feeding 5,000. Or he never spoke to the woman taken in adultery while he was dealing with the man in Gadara possessed of a spirit, an evil spirit. Jesus stayed within his own body and personality and never operated multidimensionally. What would it have been like if Christ never went back? He would be in Jerusalem today or maybe in New York, I don't know, but he couldn't be here if he was in New York. Jesus never operated multidimensionally. Instead, Jesus commissioned me in like David Livingston, who from 17, where is it, 1761 to 1834, in that life was he took the gospel to South Africa. William Carey took it to India. Jim Elliott took it to South America. Samuel Marsden brought it to good old Aotearoa. These men who were moved by the Spirit of God and others among them brought the gospel out to many, many people. We have Roland here who goes over to Nepal and teaches them how to spread the gospel of Christ. We have Roly here who goes to East Timor and puts up radio masks and does whatever he does and the gospel of God is spread out. Why didn't Christ come back and go to East Timor? Christ never operated multidimensionally. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, it's not a multi-choice. It's not, yeah, today I'll be a witness, tomorrow I won't. 
The question is, what sort of a witness are you? I've sat in many, many court cases and been a witness, and it's a pretty demanding thing, but I remember sitting in one court case about taxation, wonderful subject, <laughs> and I was seated down with uh, the Crown Council, and they had an accountant, lovely people, who was giving testimony for the other side. I'm looking at you. He was giving testimony for the other side. And he said, Mr. Carr's calculations have omitted to include a very substantial amount of money appearing on bank statement number so-and-so at the date so-and-so. And I thought, my goodness me, what have I done? And I whispered across to Crown Council, is it time for morning tea? Can we have a wee break? So he asked the judge, and the judge, yes, we'll take a 15-minute recess. And I ran out and had a look. And oh, for goodness sake, I hadn't. We went back in, and Crown Council stood up and said, you alluded to Mr. Carr ignoring an a multi-thousand dollar amount of money, yes. Would you go back to that bank statement, yes. Would you look at the preceding entry? What was that? Oh, that was an $18,000 debit. And what's it say alongside or underneath that? Oh, bank error. So the 18000 credit was just, was just contouring off a, a wrong error by the bank. And that demolished the witness. He was a hopeless witness from there on, thank goodness. But what sort of a witness are you to the grace of God? And what sort of a witness am I to the grace of God? Okay today, not so good tomorrow, by my speech, by my attitudes, by my behaviour. I remember when Jesus was in Gethsemane and was taken before the high priest of Israel. The whole Sanhedrin was assembled and now three years of frustration just poured out from the high priest and he said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus simply said, yes, it is as you say. And upon this confession, the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Jesus was a true witness and that led to his later conviction before Pilate and his later crucifixion and his later resurrection and his later empowering of every one of us by the Holy Spirit and to the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. To the ends of the earth. I wonder if the disciples had Google available. If they could ever have touched the buttons and brought up a map of the world and just gasped. How are we going to get all the way out of there? When you go through those men, Andrew was a missionary to modern-day Bulgaria and was crucified in the town of Achaia. Bartholomew became a missionary to India and was martyred and he was crucified upside down in Armenia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was a local missionary in Jerusalem and he was eventually stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was also a local missionary in Judea and he was beheaded in Judea. John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, was banished to Patmos and he died of an old age in Ephesus. Matthew became a missionary to Iran and he died of old age. Simon Peter was a missionary to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Italy, and he was martyred upside down, crucified upside down in Rome. Philip became a missionary to Turkey, and he too was crucified upside down. Simon the Zealot was appointed bishop of Rome, and he simply died of old age. Thaddeus 
became a missionary to Iraq and Syria. He also died of old age. And Thomas became a missionary to Afghanistan. They put him against a wall and thrust him through with spears. But these men looked at the world, would not have known how far it was spread. But after them, as I mentioned before, Jim Carrey came along. Not Jim Carrey. <laughs> Who said Jim Carrey? Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot came along. William Carey. William Carey, Jim Elliot. Have I got it right now? William Carey took the news to one part of that world. Jim Elliot to another. You to another. You to Botany Town Centre. How many times are we really conscious of the fact that we are witnesses of Christ and are to take the message to a world which is dying? Later on, a man called Saul of Tarsus became an ardent follower of the Jesus and Paul, along with Peter, and along with Barnabas, and along with Silas, and several others, eventually the people of that time said, you guys have turned the world upside down. New Zealand is at the top. No, not quite that. You people have turned the world upside down because of the fact that you are witnesses of the grace of God. Then there's a new promise. Is that what that says? Can't read it from here. A new promise. This same Jesus, which you have seen taken up into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And as they stood there, it was these two men in white apparel. I wonder, I've got nothing to back it up, whether they were the same two guys who were at the tomb when Mary Magdalene looked inside. But whoever they were, they gave this good news. This same Jesus will some go, come back in the same way that you have seen him go. The most fabulous six words to me in my Bible are these. If I go, I shall return. And seeing I'm pressing 70 now, but I won't say from which direction, these words just grip me and I love them. Christ is coming back. It could be at any time. There are two comings, in fact, spoken about. This particular one here will come back to the Mount of Olives, and that is when he will establish the kingdom of God on earth. But in 1 Thessalonians it says, He shall descend from heaven with a voice, with the shout of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him, and so shall we be with him. Let me say with a degree of candor I seldom have, that I believe that we are often ineffectual, troubled, weak, insipid believers because we do not let it dribble down into our hearts with all the conviction we have that I am a witness of the grace of God and he is coming back. Those two things together are the resurrection factor I want to imprint upon you this morning. He's with you and he's coming back. In 2 Thessalonians, I'll just turn to that if you like to do it, 2 Thessalonians there's a verse which used to trouble me greatly when I was a young kid because I only had the authorised version with me and it doesn't read very well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. In the authorised version it says this, and if you can understand it, you can welcome to stand up and explain it to me. He that letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Got it? No. It's far better here. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Now, if you have watched television recently, 
you will know that lawlessness is getting more and more rampant in this terrible old world of ours. But, and lawlessness is going to increase, and there's a, the Bible talks about a man of lawlessness who is coming, but the one who now holds it back, in other words, restrains the outbreak of evil in our world, will continue to restrain it or hold it back until he's taken out of the way. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit is like salt in the earth, and he is earth within each of us, and the, the outbreak of total lawlessness in our world is being held back by the salt of the Holy Spirit within each of us. But when the Holy Spirit is removed, there will be an increase of lawlessness in the world, and if I can say it with utmost respect and without wishing to misuse the term, there will be hell on earth as we have never known it. But if the Holy Spirit's going to depart, and he's indwelling with me, it means I'm going too. And that's why it excites me when the Bible says, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And we have an hour for this service, and there are seven minutes left, and we've got three songs to sing. Wrap it up, Max. <laughs> Let me say this. You are gifted, so get going. You are gifted, so get going. Those 11 men wanted to spread the gospel of Christ within the confines of Israel, maybe. And they said, can we start now, God? Or Jesus, can we get mowing? Are you, you going to do it at this time? Jesus says, you've got no idea what the kingdom of God's going to be like. It will embrace thousands upon millions of people. And amongst them, a group gathered in botany school. And here we are, we're amongst them. So, and then God said, and Jesus said, and you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You have it within you. Let me repeat, if you are gifted, get going. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit within us. We pray that you will so work in our lives by your Spirit that you will temper every personality which distracts and detracts from who you are. Help us in the way we talk and the way we act and the way we live and the way we behave, not to graffiti the name of the Lord Jesus. And as we rub shoulders with people day by day by day, help us because we are gifted with the Spirit to get going. We love you, we honour you today. We thank you that as you went, you promised you will come back. And Lord, we pray that you will hasten the day. We remind ourselves that the last verse of your Bible says, even so, come Lord Jesus. And we repeat that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.